Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Well, this morning we are continuing our study in this brief little letter of Jude. Do you engage in confrontation or are you a person who runs from confrontation? Perhaps it's one or the other. If I could even draw that out a little more, do you overly enjoy confrontation? Oh, I don't know. How, how would I know what that sounds like? Oh, I just tell them what it is. I just tell them what's on my mind. I speak my mind. Like that is, are you a person that's given to that propensity or are you deathly afraid of offending people? Are you a peace breaker? Just blow it up, whatever. Are you a peace faker? Oh, I don't want to say anything. I'll upset everything. And you know, that's just whoever in the family, that's just so-and-so. Or are we where we should be on the line of truth, and that is peacemakers? Perhaps one of the most annoying sounds that I know of is this right here. I think the only thing, and I'm not going to set it off. I set it off earlier in life. I'm not even going to put everybody through that torture. It's just so annoying. Uh, rivaling the sounds of the first alert, you know, is your alarm clock. And I have tried the soothing alarms, you know, like just these little, I sleep right through those. They don't do me any good. I just sail right through those and wake up later like, what happened to my alarm? Oh, it went off. It just was basically like, keep sleeping, you're fine, don't worry about it. It, it. That's not the point of the alarm. And after a while, if the alarm works, I don't really like that sound anymore. If it goes off in the middle of the day, it just gets, that was when I was sleeping really well and it was like, get up, you have something to do, you have a life to, you have responsibility. Lazy person, get out of bed. I don't like my alarm sounding that way to me, but that's what it is. Quite often here, we're not too far from the, the sirens that go off in our city, usually 12 noon, right? If anybody thinks the sermon should be done at 12 noon, the whole siren backs them up, you know, like, it's time, it's lunch, we got to beat, we got to beat the Methodists over there to the wherever, you know? <laughs> but basically, if you get an alarm, the sound is saying, don't ignore me. Don't dismiss me, or it's not really doing the job of an alarm. Recently, I received just an update, a weekly email from Paul David Tripp, and in this email, he gave an analogy that he grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. He's the mustache guy. We've done a marriage. Right now, we're in a parenting seminar. He grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of coal mines, and he used the analogy that in days gone by, coal miners would go down into the mine and they would take a canary with them. The canary would be in a cage and they would have an eye, somebody watching the canary, 
Because if the canary started choking or was having trouble breathing, it was high time to get up out of the coal mine because there were poisonous gases that were being released, oxygen being diminished, and that was their warning to not be ignored. Get out or your life will be in danger. So how fitting. Oh, we just want to get one more load of coal. You'll pay the price of your life. Now, every year we get the, you know, reminders, check your batteries. Make sure your batteries are right. I'll not forget somebody in our church family, the carbon monoxide, and they didn't have it. And there's a carbon monoxide alarm next door that I installed right after a family because the carbon monoxide was in their home, a family connected to our church, and they were unaware of it. And the, what the lesson was that came out of it is don't have a house without a carbon monoxide tester. And I went right over to Ace and bought one and put it up. That's heeding a warning. It's not saying, well, oh, that must be for somebody else. Well, you know, somebody else should listen to that. I hope, I hope the person behind me is listening. This is a warning, and it's for us, and Jude is writing this letter. So keep this imagery in mind, okay? Because I get offended at the sound. I'm not even going to play the sound this morning. There might be somebody who has strong aversions to alarms, and this will run you out. Warning, warning. It's just gnarly sounding on purpose to shake you up, to wake you, to move you to action. Keep this in mind when you hear Jude writing. The point is not to draw attention to his voice. The point is to draw attention to the danger and how easily we can get offended at the messenger and completely miss the message. This thing going off, take the battery out. I'm sure none of us have ever done anything stupid like that. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody submitted right there. Let's read these first four verses. I'm going to start uh, with verse one just to get a running start at today's text. Jude, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. This morning, loved ones, we want to unpack, and I'm going to give a proposition, okay? Every, every sermon, I, I generally do this. I give a proposition, and you're sensible people. As you listen, you have to bear out, you have to weigh out, work out. Is he, can he substantiate this claim? 
And, and this is what we're going to look at. How should Christians learn conviction and courage from Jude? How should Christians learn conviction and courage from Jude? So I'm actually making a truth claim that I believe this text tells us we are called to have conviction and courage, and Jude is saying you need to have this. Then you have to take this statement that usually is at the top of your notes, and you have to say, is this something that Wise invented in his office this week? Is this what we pay him to do? come up with stuff? Or is this what the text is saying? Has he, has he been faithful to the text? And then how do we, you and me, all of us, how do we put this into practice? How do we obey this truth? Well, let's pay attention. We have two letters. First of all, there was the letter of affirmation that Jude wanted to write. A letter of affirmation. Don't we all love affirmation? Oh, that was such a great job. You did such a wonderful job. We're so glad you work here. Oh, it's so wonderful. We're so thankful for you. We all love affirmation. That's the letter Jude wanted to write, a positive letter, an encouraging letter. He wanted to talk about our common salvation. Let's talk about our common salvation. He wanted to share about this. When you think about your testimony, talking about, it'll come on the screen, talking about our common salvation. Don't we love a testimony service where people share? Isn't that what we love when someone follows Christ in baptism and they sit down and we record their testimony and they share how they came to faith in Christ and we get to rejoice in how the gospel impacted their life? And we share in that. We love to share how someone met and fell in love and they married. We, we love to hear, how did you meet? Tell us about that. Jude wanted to talk about that. He wanted to share his devotion to the church. He writes to them, beloved, dear friends. That's how he opens it up. This letter was heartfelt. This letter was grounded in love. He's thinking about them, and we're not exactly clear who he's writing to. He was. This is a letter that could have been read in many churches. If it was read in any, anywhere, dear friends in Richmond. Like this is an idea that he would have had wherever this letter was to be read. You're my friends. You're my loved ones. He had a desire to communicate. When was the last time you wrote a letter? I'm not talking about a text message or an email. I heard a statistic this last week that for most people, it's been a good year or two since they've written anybody a letter. I'm like, oh, we don't write a letter. We just send an email, send a text. He wanted to write them. He was eager to put pen to paper, to parchment, and he said, I was diligent to write you, to you. There was a direction that he wanted to go, but the Spirit of God would not let him go down that pathway. The Spirit of God intervened in his mind and in his heart and in his life. And remember, it was already settled in our message last week. He was a slave of Jesus Christ, so his desire was submitted to Christ. 
Peter articulated the process of divine inspiration. This is helpful to us. How do we get the Bible? You know, did guys like Jude and Peter and Paul, did they sit somewhere in a room and say, what do I want to write? What do I want to write? What should I write? Hey, you know, bring me, uh, Titus, bring me the headlines. Bring me the headlines. What's going on? Uh, I need to write a letter. This is not how they wrote. This is what Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The idea there is like a ship with the sails fully, full out. And the wind comes and fills the sails and the ship is carried along through the water. That's the idea. Is that Jude said, I wanted to write, but the Spirit of God said, no, you're going a different direction. I'm not going to let you go that direction. Oh, he wanted to share about his devotion to the church. He loved them. He had a desire to communicate with them, to write a letter. He was eager to do it. It wasn't, oh, fine, I'll write you a letter. You know, you better write your grandma. Oh, okay. I wrote her two years ago. I'm like, come on, get it together. A doctrine of the cross. This is what he wanted to write about, about our common salvation. He wanted to remind them of our common faith, how we were saved, about when we were saved. He had a lot that he could have said about how he came to faith in Christ. And all we got was servant of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but tell us the backstory. Tell us all of it, Jude. No. It's not going to happen in this letter. He wanted to talk about that. He probably wanted to have it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jude. Another gospel. Now think about this. Isn't this what gets the curiosity going for most people around Easter and Christmas? But have you heard about this other extra Biblical writing, this book. Did you know about the Gospel of Thomas? And have you heard about this? And have you heard about that? And what about, and you know Jesus when he was a child and he pushed off, you know, all of these supposed conspiracies, all of these things. And Jude could have written, let me tell you, I grew up in the house with Jesus. And the Spirit said, no. No. That's not what is needed. We don't need the brother's testimony of growing up in the home. Here's what we need, Jude. We need this call to action. Philippians 1.6 describes the process of God's divine work of salvation and how we are saved by grace through faith, and through Christ alone. This is what Jude wanted to talk about. And I love, as I was studying this, Jude said, have you ever had somebody come in and say, you know, I just can't tell you what happened at work today. It was really bad. 
you know, like they've already tipped their, they've already said a clue of what they weren't supposed to say anything about, you know, or maybe when you're trying to conceal a present, you know, and your kids are involved for your, your spouse. Now don't tell mom, don't tell dad. Dad said, I can't tell you anything about the gift for you. It's big. I didn't tell her. Okay. So here Jude is saying, I wanted to write a letter to you about our common salvation our common salvation, what we have, what we have, what we possess, the glorious truth that Christ alone is our only hope, our only means of salvation. Jude shared in the same love of doctrine and teaching as it goes hand in hand with a love for a church. Loved ones, listen, you can't love the church, you cannot love Jesus and reject doctrine. The process of God's work, Jude sounds very much like the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1.6, how Paul wrote, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began the work in you, Christian, and he is working in you, and he will finish the work in you. Amen? And so we engage with him, but he's doing all the heavy lifting. We're just drawing near. So when Jude says, our common salvation, what is he referring to? The reality that we have been saved, loved ones, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. This is past tense. This is what it means to be justified. This is what Titus wrote or Paul, Paul wrote to Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Father, Son, Spirit, all involved. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. How do you become an heir? It's not by anything you do. That's such an important word in soteriology, in the doctrine of salvation. That God saves, adopts, and makes you a joint heir with Christ. That's not something you can buy into or work your way into. So the reality is, is that we have been saved. Past tense. This is what it means to be, and the word is justified justified. This is a powerful word for a Christian. It means that you are, when God looks on you, he sees you as if you have never sinned. And even more than that, he looks on you as if you have always perfectly obeyed because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When he sees me, he doesn't see Brian the sinner. He sees Brian the son, the saint, clothed, covered in the righteousness of Christ. So I'm acceptable to God not by anything that I've done, not by anything I could do, but because of what Christ has done. And he said it, it is finished. 
And if you have turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ, then this is your status. Oh, I have been saved. So whenever you talk to somebody and they say, I hope that I'm going to heaven, then they don't have this confidence. And, and, and our goal is not to try to give them confidence, assurance apart from salvation. They need to be saved. But before you can become a member, what is your testimony of salvation? Before we baptize someone, what is your testimony of salvation? Have you been saved? Past tense. And then we are being saved. Scripture teaches us. Paul writes, we are being saved. He says this in 2 Corinthians 2. Here's the present tense. For we, 2 Corinthians 2.15, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You understand all that God has done and is doing in salvation? I don't. But I find really good company in Apostle Paul, and he says, who is sufficient for these things? Later on, he answers that question. Our sufficiency is from God. So we are being saved. This is what it means to be, and the word is sanctified set apart. This is an ongoing work. This is what the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer that is purifying you, purifying me. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to your word. So I have been cleansed and I need cleansing. John 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Peter, oh no, you're not going to wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you got nothing to do. Okay, I'll take the shower. I'll take the full, the full deal. The works, Jesus. Uh, no, 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 Peter. You're already clean. Okay, you've been justified. You're clean, but now you need to be this work of sanctification, and you're going to need it for the rest of your life. And so it is with every child of God. This is what it is to be sanctified, justified, sanctified. And then the scriptures also teach that we will be saved. This is future. Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, that was first coming, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is what the Christian looks forward to, that he is coming again. Even as we remember communion, we remember Christ in communion, till I come again, I'm coming back. This is then the reality that we will be saved. This is future. And this word is that we will be glorified. This work will be finished. That was Philippians 1.6. It has it all entailed. That Have you been saved? Then you are being saved and you will be saved. This is past, present, future. This is the work of God. And this is what Titus, he wanted to spend his time talking about, hey, this is given to all who are in Christ. Loved ones, this doctrine 
has been given to the church, and the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, Paul wrote to Timothy. So this demands that the church must know the objective truth. Do you realize how out of touch I sound in our day when I say objective truth? This guy is so archaic. This guy is not with the times. This guy needs to get back and get in line and march to the beat of 2021. Scripture doesn't bend for that, loved ones. It doesn't curve and change and ebb and flow. That's what Jude wanted to write about was our salvation. So as a church As a believer, as a Christian, we must know the objective truth. We need to immerse ourselves in this truth. We need to be convinced of this truth. And this truth then will transform us. And then we teach it and we share this truth. Loved ones, there's only one gospel. We studied that in our study in Galatians, the first chapter. And so few are willing to stand for truth today. God, I don't don't want to offend anybody. What if you offend God? What if I offend God? It's getting more difficult to find those who will hold to the truth. It's getting more difficult to find those who will even claim there is truth. But understand if we say, well, that's your truth. That's my truth. That's his truth. That's her truth. That's their truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he made a truth claim. You cannot get to the Father. No one can get to the Father except through me. I am the door. There's only one way in. Thieves, robbers, they come in all over the back. They try to get in. What, what, to steal the sheep? Jesus says, there's one way in. I'm the door. Loved ones, Jude knew all too well about our common salvation. For those who have been saved by grace through faith, he knew this, then we're united in Christ. We're one family. We're put into one body, one building, this divine work of God. We're one in Christ because of what he just just couldn't stay away from. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, our common salvation. He didn't just say salvation. Our common salvation, all that we have in Christ. He wanted to write it. Examine this. Here's another writer of Scripture, the half-brother of Jesus, the full brother of James, and he humbly is placing himself on the same plane, the same level as everybody else in the church. Does that match? Does that match the tradition you were brought up in? And I can go across a lot of different denominations here. I can start with what, how I was raised. Oh, the pastor, the pastor. I've been to conferences where they taught people how to really elevate the pastor. 
Is that what we see Jude doing? Our common salvation. And you can move into different traditions that elevate different people because of who they are, how gifted they are, how effective, how many books they write, how many followers they have, how large the stadium is that they fill with people. But we still have to measure everything by Scripture. And when Jude and when the apostle Peter says, shepherd the flock of God who is among you, I who am a fellow elder, he doesn't say, I have the keys. They're right here in my pocket. You ever know that person that jingles keys, you know, when it's time to go? They start jingling their keys in their pocket. Peter didn't do that. He didn't walk into all the, you know, apostle meetings Keys, ching, 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 keys. I have the keys. Jesus gave me the keys. That's not, not Peter. I'm a fellow elder. Oh, that's what, that's what Jude wanted to write about. But then he quickly moves to what he had to write about. This is where we see a letter of appeal that Jude was willing to write. We just got a little glimpse of the letter he wanted to write, and now we see the letter of appeal that he was willing to write. You see the submission there? He wasn't just waiting to write a scathing letter and let me put some people in their place because I just tell it like it is. After all, Jesus was my brother, you know. And James, too. No, he's calling people to action. He's saying, oh, I wanted to talk about our common salvation. But the Spirit of God is moving him. We're going to need to do something about a common enemy we have. This is a call to action. This is an appeal. And he was willing to write. He's not just taking up the pen to browbeat people. He's sounding the warning Warning, pay attention. You always saw that alarm sitting there somewhere. I'm telling you, I'm pushing the button. It's going off. They're here, these false teachers. We gather a sense of urgency. Think about it. We're into the verse three. We're barely into this letter. Where are all the niceties? Where are all the, I so thank God for you and I think I hear of you. All that is dispensed with, okay? If you have a fire in your house, that's not the time when you need, hey, what year was this house built? And how many exits are there? And let's talk about the, what's the finish on the walls? And the, no, get out of the house. And that's the urgency that we see. In Jude's letter, it's a letter of appeal. He's writing, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He's asking and he's urging his listeners, his readers, fight for the common faith. Fight for the common faith. The word there, contend, it's agonize. It's to struggle or fight with intense effort. Now, do we understand the difference when two teams face off on a field and they, they fight, you know, within the, within the boundary of the field? That's a little different when you start 
splendid, the malice in the palace, and the fans starts getting involved with those on the field, right? Everything gets changed then. Jude is not writing that we become antagonizing people. And everywhere we go, we have dukes up, I'm looking for a fight. That's not it. He's saying contend for the faith. What is it that we would contend for? The faith. He narrows it down. Our statement of faith is online. Every member has a copy of our statement of faith. It's what we will contend for. That's the authority, the inerrancy, the perfection of Scripture that we hold to the Word of God. We hold to a doctrine of sin, that all men are sinners. What does the Bible teach about who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God? That man is a sinner in need of salvation. Our only hope is Christ. The Spirit indwells every believer. We believe in the eternal security of every child of God. We believe in the visible return of Jesus Christ for his church, and the church is only made up of those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone. Not Jesus in baptism, Jesus in membership, Jesus alone, and all of the obedience follows out afterwards. That's our statement of faith. It's non-negotiable. And we will contend for that. No additional books are needed. You've seen that advertised, right? Hey, we'll send you a copy of the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the update, the clarifier to the Word of God. Nope, not according to Jude. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. No additional dogma is needed from any religious hierarchy claiming to have authority over other people outside of Scripture. The only authority that I have, that we have as elders, that we have as believers, is bound to Scripture, period. Everything else, when it comes to building plans or anything else, our plans are open-handed because we don't have a book and chapter and verse. So we have to use wisdom and guidance and counsel, and we trust This faith is not defective. This faith is not deficient. I was just thinking in preparing this message when Dale Oling was here, do you know how much fun that we had? When I came, our statement of faith was, I think, one page. And it was just no scripture. And it was just, and it was all, all of it was there. But Dale and I, we, we spent every week, we would gather and we would spend about an hour, two hours, three hours. And we took line by line by line by line by line. Say, does the scripture teach that? Where does the scripture teach that? Why do we believe that? And where's the book, chapter, and verse? Just for clarification, it didn't need any updating. It wasn't defective. It wasn't deficient. And if God, you know, tarries in some future grandson of mine, whether it be physical or spiritual, is standing in a pulpit, they're not going to have to update anything. They're not going to have to. We need a new upgrade to our statement of faith. No. No. This is it right here. Been handed to me. Handed to the next generation. The weight that we have, this isn't just for me. It is for me, but it's for you too. That you hand the faith to the next generation in your family. 
and how easily it is to drop it through careless words, careless actions, or obliteration of our priorities through chasing everything that everybody else is chasing after. Hand the faith. Contend for the faith. This is what Jude had to write about. Galatians 1.23. This is what Paul said. They were only hearing about me. What do you know about this guy? I have Saul. I don't know, he's going by Paul now. Here's what we know. He used to persecute us. Now he's preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He's preaching the faith. This faith is the enduring faith, and this faith is the entrusted faith. It's enduring, and it has been entrusted It's been delivered to the saints. It's enduring and it will endure and it has been entrusted. The gospel must be passed down to the next generation, one generation to the next generation. Do you realize Christianity is one generation away from being extinct? If we don't, by God's grace, do what God has for us to pass the faith along. We have a responsibility, and yes, I know God is sovereign, and we have a responsibility to obey the Great Commission. Paul's exhortation to the Philippians sounds very similar to Jude's, Philippians 1.27. He writes only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice how he says, I don't want to hear of you fighting each other, calling it the gospel, fighting for the faith, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you hear what he's doing? He's saying, I'm in the, I'm in the battle. And whether I come and visit you in Philippi or I just hear about you in Philippi, I want to hear that you're, you're still standing firm in the faith. Don't be afraid of your opponents. Don't be afraid of them. Judgment is coming. And it's not judgment from you. It's judgment from God. And that gives us a sense of need for mercy and a sense of awe and fear and reverence. So he says we need to fight. Fight for the common faith. Fight for the common faith. This faith is enduring and this faith has been entrusted, loved ones. So then Jude calls us to fight against certain threats. So we have a positive fight for the common faith. That's the direction. So if you've ever coached a a team and you try to get everybody pointed in the right direction, that's a lot of fun, isn't it? Soccer and the kids going the wrong way. Not that goal. No, not that. Oh, I scored. Good job. Next time, could you score down there? And then we get the point. Okay. Sure, coach. 
That was good though, right? What do you say? You're a junior in high school. Come on. <laughs> Go to the bench. Substitute right now. Fight against the certain threats. And here's where Jude tells us what's going on. Fight for the common faith. And then in verse 4, he identifies the threat. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Have you ever heard someone provide a disclaimer for a person promoting a false religion? Promoting bad theology? Or even a divisive person in the church, and here's what they say. But they are so nice. They were just so nice. I mean, I know they were trying to give me another book to add to the Bible or their publication out of New York to add to Scripture, but they were so nice. I just, I just brought them in. I said, come on in. Danger. Warning. You can use imagination. Eh, eh, eh. They knew so much about the Bible. No. Jude says these certain people. Notice Jude doesn't identify them by name. Sometimes in Scripture, Paul identified by name. But Jude didn't. He wasn't dropping down into personal attacks. I don't like them. He was attacking their ideology. He was attacking their belief that was contrary to truth, contrary to Scripture. Why didn't he name the people? Well, those people would have lived and died, and then we would say, whew, glad we didn't have to deal with whatever the name of was that guy. Bad theology just keeps showing up. False teaching just keeps showing up. Century after century, after different person after different person, and they show up and keep, they keep bringing the same old bad teaching. It's just repackaged. Satan doesn't create anything. He just mimics badly. He lies. But he's not a creator. So he just keeps repackaging the same old, has God said? Can you really trust the Bible? How arrogant that people would come in and they, they sit down for like an, almost an hour, an hour sometimes more than an hour, and they listen to this guy talk. Isn't that arrogant? Shouldn't we just have a conversation? Have you heard of this? Sweeping through our culture, and it's starting to play out big time in chaos everywhere where everybody is right in everything. And no one could stand up and say, that is wrong. And when you go against God and you go against his truth, loved one, you pay the price. And he loved you despite of committing treason to him and against him as I did. And instead of crushing you with full force of judgment, which he is entitled and just and fairly could have done for all of us, he sent his son who was crushed in your place. Yeah. 
So you don't have to be punished for your offense against this holy and good and faithful and righteous God because he took your place, but you must admit he is holy and I'm a sinner. I deserve hell and I trust in Jesus. That's what the thief on the cross came to terms with. Have you come to terms with this? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you're brought into this, that you're part of fighting against certain threats. Jude identifies, well, how how are we going to know what kind of people are these? Well, he says, thank you for asking. Uh, Let me answer that for you. They have ungodly behavior. They're very ungodly, anti-God, without God. They're godless men, even though they may be religious. Jude is exposing the real identity that's beneath the layers of their religiosity. They claim to be religious, but their pattern of life reveals that they really have no desire to be like Jesus. They have really no love for Jesus as revealed in Scripture. They just like to take Jesus, use his name, because it increases the following. Because everybody respects Jesus, the one they have made up in their mind. Don't know what to do with the Jesus who made a whip and drove the money changers out of his father's house. And then he said, my house. These individuals creep into the church unnoticed. Jude isn't saying that all of a sudden, oh, where'd they come from next to me? I don't even know who that is. No, that's not what he's talking about, that they just show up like phantoms. No, they come in like wolves in sheep's clothing. They make public confessions of faith like everybody else. They engage in the life and ministry of the church like everybody else. But they are deceived and they are deceiving others. These are, and what Jude is talking about in this letter is apostasy. They're apostates. They aren't hidden from the readers. Their real motives are hidden from the readers. This is similar to the warnings from Jesus and Paul, Matthew 7, 15. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They are wolves. Beware of these individuals, Galatians 2, 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. They creep in unnoticed. This is their ungodly behavior. So you have to pay attention. And so in Acts chapter 20, Paul the apostle, and he warns the Ephesian elders, and we come to this text so many times. This is one of the main texts that led our church into going away from pastor, staff, deacons, trustees, congregants, all. A biblical model of ministry is right here, Acts 20, verse 28. And Paul, with these men that he loved, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is team ministry. 
This is shepherding in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What are you supposed to be doing to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood? And he says, Here's it is. here it is, warning, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's what they're there for. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with, do you see this? Tears. I believe that's what we see in Jude. We don't see someone just ready to fight with everybody, ready to argue with everybody, ready to post on social media against the world. I just take people on. He knows exactly what the Spirit of God needs for the church, and he's saying we need to fight for the common faith and fight against the certain threats. You're going to know by their ungodly behavior these men have been marked out a long time ago for judgment. So here we have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. Peter addressed the sovereign coming judgment upon the ungodly, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 these individuals who refuse to repent. They're vessels of wrath, 1 Peter 2, 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to to do. These individuals do not take God by surprise. Judas Iscariot did not take Jesus by surprise. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, he knew that was coming. Now, can I, pastor, can you just explain how God takes and uses a Judas? And why would he do that? I'm not God. But here's what I know. God takes every person and situation and it all is all working together according to the counsel of his will. How do you know that? It's what I see in scripture and you're sensible people and you have to read and you have to work these things out. Do you trust in this God? Do you know this God? They have ungodly behavior, but they also have unorthodox belief. These individuals, Jude is saying, they pervert grace. They pervert grace. Their unorthodox belief, their teaching. How exactly is liberty perverted? Now, on the screen is going to come the line, all right? This is the line of truth. This is where liberty in Christ is. This is where we have freedom in Christ, those who have been saved. So how do these people who creep in, who bring an unorthodox belief, well, they can actually come in one or two different directions. They can come in above the line of truth, and that's legalism. They come in and, and they, they sound like this. Well, you know, we don't eat these certain foods. You know, we don't wear this site certain type of clothing. You know, we don't do this and we don't do that. 
And you say, well, where, where is that in the scripture? Uh, there's not a scripture, but that's what we don't do. Okay, so they add to scripture. They go above the line and they say, well, if, the, if this is truth and modesty is the issue, then here we go. And you can see us and we'll, we'll give you the right rendering of what you can wear, not wear, so forth. This is legalism. Uh, I love what John MacArthur says about this in the book, The Truth War. He says, don't fall into the trap of assuming that the most censorious and nitpicking opinions are automatically the most discerning ones. Watch out for the person, he continues, who shows no caution or restraint about making severe judgments and yet claims to be a discernment expert. True discernment is gained by applying our hearts and minds to biblical wisdom, listen now, not by fostering a critical spirit. So when Jude is saying contend for the faith, he is not encouraging and blessing being critical of others, condemning of others, unrighteously judging others, Matthew 7, 1, looking down your nose at them. But contend for the faith that line of liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ. Well, how else can this be perverted? They come in through, and this is probably more common, and this is lawlessness. This is where somebody says, oh, I've been saved. I've been saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. I have a license. I've got to get out of hell card free. I'm fine. I'm saved. I can live however I want to live, or they live however they want to live, and we say, but, but they pray to prayer. I'm sure they're going to be okay. It doesn't match with Scripture. This is a liberal line. This is just a license to do. This is abuse of grace. Contrary to Romans 6.1, shall we sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, God forbid. This belief eventually comes out in behavior. These individuals, they end up being unfaithful in marriage. They commit adultery. Individuals who serve in ministry positions and then they're unfaithful and then they show up remarried to someone in writing books about how God's grace has redeemed them. Immorality. People that Jude is talking about, these certain people, they refuse to take a biblical stance on purity, on human sexuality, on marriage and the family. False teachers, they refuse and they would say, we, we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be closed-minded about all of the social hot topics of our day because we don't want to be criticized and we don't want to become unpopular within our culture. Another way is through indulgence. They creep in, their behavior tells on them, their belief. They love money. They love pleasure. They, they pursue the American dream. Their priorities are carnal, earthly, and they're consumed with the appetites of the flesh. The indulgent person, they chase after sports, after hobbies, after career dollars at the expense and their family's expense of pursuing Christ. Let me ask you point blank, parents and grandparents, what are you showing to your children by your life and your example that you are passing down as most precious? You and I must answer these questions. 
You say, I don't like it when he says that. But what are your children catching from you is what is most important. What are we exemplifying before them? What are we holding high before them? What do we love? Isn't it, can we not agree on extremely foolish to exchange the eternal on the altar of the temporary? So not just for me as a preacher, but also for you as a church member. Are we reaching out to our loved ones to lovingly and truthfully identify and expose and see these errors corrected? You may hate the messenger, like I hate the sound of the alarm in the morning. But you have to consider the message. Lastly, these certain individuals, these certain people that creep in, they slither into the church. We see in them not just an ungodly behavior, an unorthodox belief, but an unwillingness to bow. This is the heart of it. This is the foundation of it. This is the root that leads to the, the belief that comes out in behavior. This is at the core. This is where he's, he's building and it hits a crescendo. These people won't bow to Jesus. They deny Christ. This is where false teachers and false teaching and false religions end up. They have a respect for Jesus, but they reject the Jesus as revealed in the Old and New Testament that's preached in the Gospels, revealed in the Gospels, preached in Acts, explained in the epistles, and expected in Revelation. False teaching denies Jesus. What do they do? These ungodly and dangerous people that's deadly to the church, deadly to the gospel, disastrous. They deny the sovereignty and lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you see what, what Jude says here? They, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus' sovereignty and his lordship. Do you view Jesus as master and Lord over you the way Jude did? Is this how we view Jesus, loved ones? This is ascribing that he is worthy and that we are needy. Is this the perspective of your heart and life? They deny his humanity. You remember when the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. This is his name, Jesus, Yeshua. Islam rejects the humanity of Christ. How would God become a man and go through all the bodily functions that we go through? Oh, that's despicable, no way. Well, that's the Jesus revealed in scripture. That, by the way, the Quran says, search the scriptures. That's how Irfan Abdul Latif's dad came to faith in Christ. Deep in the heart of Iraq. They deny Jesus' deity, Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, that he was fully God to pay our debt, to rise from the dead on our behalf. False religions deny the deity of Christ. Jude is so crystal clear here. May God help us to learn conviction and courage 
that will stand firm. The, the letter that Jude wanted to write, oh, I wanted to write to you. I wanted to have just a wonderful service and we could talk about our common salvation. I mean, how long you want to talk? We could just share and share and share. But there was a lo- the letter that Jude was willing to write and he says, we have to do something. Loved ones, you need to do something about this common threat. A few questions for application. Begin to prepare your heart and mind as we gather in small groups and maybe this afternoon. Think about how the faith was delivered to the apostles. Think about the faith. How was it delivered to the apostles? How was the faith delivered to you? Where is that faith going? That question will come up on the screen. Think about this. It's at the bottom of your worship guide. How does Jude's passion for the truth affect me? When you listen to this individual, when you hear him write, how does that affect you? How is the faith delivered to the apostles to me and where is it going from there? And lastly, what's my next step? To stand firm in love for the faith, to pass the faith along. May we be encouraged to do so. Will you stand? We're gonna sing and... The song that we're going to sing is actually a song declaring the faith. What is it that we believe? And then, after singing in this song together, we will participate together and remember the Lord of our faith, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that it is true and trustworthy. Father, may we contend for the faith. And we understand that it has been costly down through the generations and that it is costly because it is precious. May we never be critical individuals, contentious individuals, judgmental in a a wrong way, in a condescending way. But may we be, and this is the greatest word that sums it up, Christ-like as we speak the truth in love. Work your will in our hearts and lives, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.